don't save to the cloud or whatever, save to your computer. Okay. The second thing is you're going to get two save files, maybe three. One will just be audio and the other one I think will be the whole video, et cetera. So okay. you'll, you'll, you'll get two files from the output. Okay. Oh, wait, I have more housekeeping. Go ahead. What, what, what the <laughs> so I, I, I want you to, I want, I want some more energy in the intro. I think we've gotten a little sloppy in it recently. We've gotten a little, uh, a little uh, low energy jab in our intro. I'm glad that we're whatever recording. This is great. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is great radio. Uh, no, I'll I'll crop out. I want, I want a high energy introduction. I'm going to start by insulting your introduction and telling you it's low energy. Well, I, that, that's just what I what I've gathered from listening to them. You know, like great, first sure. few episodes, like they were they were very high energy. Okay. Um, high energy. That's fine. Yeah, a little bit more high energy, and I think we should we should go back to our original uh, uh, intro strategy where I say my name. Cause that hasn't been happening recently. Oh yeah. Did we stop doing that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we can do that. That's fine. I I don't pay attention to that. We can do that. And then clap when your thing's done or I don't know, you could do like a visual cue this time if you want, I guess, but I, I like clapping's good. Clapping's good. Um, do you want to do yours first? Thank you. Uh, let's do yours first because I, cause I do the intro then I transition over to you for your piece. Okay. Because I don't, I don't want to do the thing where like we read one of them and then we say, okay, well, we'll come back and talk about it. And then we read another one. I think we should like do one, talk about it and then do the other one and talk about it. Okay. Well, I'm, let's do yours. Talk about yours. Okay. And then do mine. Talk about mine. Good idea. Fuck. Can you that? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let me know when you, when you want me to actually do the intro. We can, God damn it. Yeah, whatever you want. We're good to go. Okay. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, for episode 10 of the Roses and Rhetoric podcast. For those of you that hey, have been on. with us long, <laughs> are time. you kidding me? <laughs> uh, what did you just do? Dude, I didn't do anything. It was you. What did I do? I don't know. Just try it again. What did I do? I, I, Dude, I don't know. It just went out. Wait, the audio went out? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, it's back now, but it was out for like a few seconds. Okay, this is going to be a rough episode. <laughs> see it coming right now. I don't know. I think we're off to a great start, personally. Okay. I think the problem might be with your headphones because it's saying that my microphone is working. When I, when I go to test my audio, it can see the little bars moving up and down when I, when I, when I talk. Uh, you could be right. Try unplugging your headphones. Yeah, let me check for another headphone thing. Give me a second. We are we are recording, uh, ladies and gentlemen. If any of this makes it into the uh, final product, we do want to thank you for bearing with us as we get this figured out. Uh, episode 10, you might think we would have this figured out by now, but we are actually using a new recording platform. We're using Zoom. The uh, first few episodes were not on Zoom. They were on an app on our phone, uh, but we transitioned over to Zoom to get a, a, a better quality audio uh, for the podcast. So with, with changes in technology, there's always a few speed bumps. So, uh, we are working through that right now, but that should be a good episode today. A lot of good stuff to cover and certainly setting some things up for the, for the new year. We're going to keep this podcast going, of course, and, uh, excited to introduce a couple of things. 
uh, that we're looking forward to at the beginning of the year. And we'll just encourage our audience to, uh, again, follow us on our website, follow us on Twitter at roses underscore rhetoric, and then also uh, the website, www.rosesandrhetoric.com. Yes, I've been talking that whole time as a good host, always keeping the microphone hot. All right, are you, are you, are you plugged in? Dude, this is fucked. <laughs> just leave your headphone unplugged. Can you, does your, does your microphone on your computer not work well? My computer mic? Yeah. Does it sound different now? No, it sounds the same. It sounds the same? Yeah. Okay, well, I will just use this then. All right, very good. Well, ladies and gentlemen, episode number 10 of the Roses and Rhetoric podcast. Thank you for being with us on today's episode number 10, always a milestone. Uh, 10 weeks straight of doing this, uh, improving every time I would say, getting better every time I would say. Today's episode off to a little bit of a rocky start as we finagle with some audio uh, problems, but we are off and running. So on today's episode, we have both Joe and I a piece um, to start. That would be my charming co-host. Joseph Stanford. Who was with me as always. And so we're going to begin Today's episode, we're going to start with a piece from Joseph Stanford, talk about it for a little bit, and then we'll transition over to, to my piece. And then we have a couple of uh, other smaller items that we'll get to as well in today's episode. But Joe, when you're ready, let's start with your piece and dive right into episode number 10. Okay, perfect. So I want to talk about some ideas from an investor that I've been recently studying. His name is Ray Dalio, and he's considered by many to be one of the greatest investors in history certainly is one of the most is the most successful hedge fund manager in history. He's been described as the Da Vinci or Steve Jobs of investing. His company, Bridgewater, that he started out of his apartment at age 26, has been built into an organization that manages over $200 billion in hedge funds and shapes the large deal of the way our world works. As a result, Ray is one of the richest men in the world today. Ray coined the idea that national economies follow long and short-term debt cycles, i.e. large global oscillations with periods of about 100 years, comprised of smaller oscillations with 10-year periods. He theorizes that we are in phase five of a six-phase long-term debt cycle. Phase five is the phase where the system starts showing signs of decline or collapse that inevitably lead to revolution and or civil war, AKA phase six. It's only after these periods of revolution or civil war that long-term debt cycle restarts at phase one. His model has been validated by all developed nations throughout history. He even has trends of Chinese dynasties overlaid with the debt cycles. And it still shows proof of this going back thousands of years. At this point, it's important to note that Ray claims government printing of money is not always harmful, nor does it always create inflation. But how it's a necessary part of the debt cycle, and if done properly, in a way that debt incurred produces an ROI greater than initial spending, it can have a net positive effect on an economy with little downside. Now, here's some indicators of advanced stages of phase five. The first one is decadence. So money that's being spent by the haves as opposed to the have nots in society on luxury items, 
does not yield a positive ROI and leads to economic instability, especially if debt is used for purchases of such decadence. Next, populism and extremism. Populism is a political and social phenomenon that appeals to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are not being addressed by elites. It's common when there are large wealth or opportunity gaps, perceived cultural threats from those with different values, both inside and outside the country, and establishment elites in positions of power who are not working effectively for most people. Populists are much more extreme than moderates and tend to appeal to the emotions of the common man. Populists create counter-populists, which leads to conflict. An example can be seen in the battle between communism and racism in the 1930s. Today, we see this with Trump coming to fame on the right, while people such as Bernie, AOC, Elizabeth Warren, and Kamala Harris come to fame on the left. Next, demonizing of those in other classes. Scapegoat classes arise who are commonly believed to be the source of problems. The public assumes the belief that if fill-in-the-blank group is destroyed, imprisoned, or kept out, the nation will be better off as a result. And the last indicator here is a loss of truth in the public domain. Not knowing what is true because of distortions in the media and propaganda increases as people become more polarized, emotional, and politically motivated. People's emotions are manipulated by the media to gain support and destroy the opposition. In this late stage of phase five, even very capable and powerful people are now too afraid of the media to speak up about the important matters or even run for office. Many are censored. And lastly, protests become increasingly more violent. Now, one big difference of today versus the past is the rapid distribution of information or more accurately disinformation or propaganda at scale. With the internet, communication can happen at light speed and with AI or digital algorithms, information can be infinitely varied until the desired result is produced. Today, the country is split 50-50 over seemingly unreconcilable lines. Moderates are increasingly in the minority and extremists are increasingly in the majority. In each party, there's a self-reinforcing pull to greater polarization and increased conflict. Where does this lead us? Is it still rational to assume that the US economy will follow the age-old trend of the long-term debt cycle? Or has AI and other technologies created a disruptive environment where the old world order has been thrown out and replaced with an unpredictable new one? And that's open for discussion. I, I was clapping, but I was muted. So, you know, as always, the um, muted applause of the masses is what I always assume on the other end of the line. Uh, Ray Dalio is a, a name, and I, I'm, I'm sure you've done this. I know I've done this as well. You, you find kind of an intellectual, and the first thing you do is Google, you know, insert person's name here, followed by book recommendations, right? So Ray Dalio comes up on quite a number of people's book recommendations. I think the work that I'm thinking of is called Principles. Is that a book that you're familiar with? And could you talk a little bit about that work? Yeah, yeah, I have it on my bookshelf here somewhere. Um, but yeah, I actually found Ray Dalio through Tony Robbins, who wrote Money Mastering the Game and some other financial books. And he just idolizes Ray Dalio throughout the whole book. 
and there's interviews with him and he's a very quiet person. It's hard to find him. And like Tim Ferriss and Tony Robbins are really some of the only public figures that have access to him. And the things that he's done, his track record is just amazing. Like he was one of the few people that predicted the 2008 crisis and he's developed uh, investing strategies that have only lost money like four times in the past, like 40 years. And the biggest losses were like, I don't know, no more than 4%. Well, the biggest gains and average gains are comparable to the market average, if not better. So he's developed a lot of interesting trading and investing techniques. Um, specifically, he believes in this idea of principles, using principles to dictate what your investing moves are and to put those principles out on the table so that they can be discussed by a lot of people. And once you agree on common principles, it's a lot easier to objectively make right decisions and limit risk and effectively predict the future. Um, in other words, he's just a super, super smart guy, probably once in a generation type. And um, yeah, I, I'm really interested how his model fits in with modern times and where that means the economy is headed at this point especially in light of new inventions and new technologies like AI or these advanced algorithms that we use. Well, and even what you were talking to, which is just the increase of information flow. And I know one of the ideas that Nassim talks a bunch about is that, you know, even with the information age with that comes the noise age where you, we have a lot of information, but also a lot of noise. And so it's hard to figure out which is which. And so I'm, I'm, I'm interested from kind of Ray Dalio's, perspective, you're mentioning some of those things that he keeps an eye on as indications of these long-term cycles. And I was wondering, you know, let's take each of these a little bit and, and maybe give some, some specific examples of these where they occur. So we talk about um, decadence, you know, what do you, when you look out or maybe, maybe Ray's given a, some, some good examples of this, when we're looking out at the way that people spend money today, what are some, some clear cut examples of decadence? And, yeah, this would be like examples of buying those super high value yachts or extra homes, even worse, especially if you buy them with a debt. Right. Um, and just other investments that really will never pay themselves off, like cars, like, I don't know, I guess vacations, are, for example, kind of do stimulate local economies. So maybe that's not an example, but just any, any, any assets that devalue over time. So it's, it's funny that we're talking about Ray Dalio right now and investing. Uh, I just finished a book I, I mentioned on last episode called The Number, written by Alex Berenson. And this number, uh, rather the, the book, The Number, was written in like 2004. I think they had a new edition come out, so quite a, quite a bit old. But what the book talks about is the way that corporations fo focusing on short-term profits led to all sorts of pressures for them to basically – engage in manipulating or overstating their company's actual value to meet these quarterly profit expectations. And that that driver for many of those expectations drove and ultimately led to, to bad behavior. And it's funny, as, as you're talking about these things and really about decadence and, and debt spending, it just kind of opens my mind to this broader picture of people having in, incentives that are out of line with, with long-term prosperity and long-term happiness. And when we're talking about Ray Dalio and the book Principles, it seems like he's trying to argue exactly against that, that we should be thinking 
long-term looking at long-term cycles, but also driving towards things that are, that are actual, that are actually producing value and not just the appearance of value, the way that uh, some companies may be engaging in for their short-term stock gains. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things that, and I, that I like about Ray, so Ray, he's very counter to the rest of the investing community. Like he's, he's kind of, he's the black swan of the group. And one of the things that he really believes is he believes in just the overall cyclic nature of the universe. So he talks a lot about uh, Joseph Campbell, who's an author who talks about the, the hero's journey, the heroic journey, or, you know, the three act version of movies and how that's often repeated throughout nature. And he just took that one step f- further and applied that to, uh, to investing into global economies and national economies. And he's produced this model that has has allowed him to make a lot of money in in terms of predictions and predicting where markets will go and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's what gives him the edge in this, in this department. But again, he also talks about getting the right ROIs for investments and especially for government spending and printing of money. If you're not putting those monies toward good things, then it's going to, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be toxic for the, for the economy. And some examples of good ways to do it, he says that, uh, well, he said education and infrastructure are always two, uh, two good, good places to do that, to spend money, because those usually provide ROIs. And that, and that makes sense, too. I mean, especially if your country's trying to, you know, transition to some new technology or some new innovation, it would make sense that you would need both investment and infrastructure to accommodate, you know, that new system, whatever it is, if it's, you know, internet lines or telephone lines, whatever it is, and then also education to meet the growth and demand for jobs that are maybe just now becoming actual jobs, you know, not too long ago, you know, working in IT would have been, you know, what does that stand for? Now it's, you know, a very common job. So it, it would make sense that you would see uh, investment in infrastructure and in education. And I wanted to Building, building on that, getting back to these terms that we hear, I, I would say for, for sure the term populism we hear on the left and on the right. I don't know that we hear nationalism so much on the, on, on the left, but I think that we hear populism on both. Let's go back to those terms. Let's define them again and explain, you know, kind of it from, from Ray's perspective, why do these things come into existence and how do they play into this transition between stage five and stage six? So there's an overarching cycle where, where, where nations kind of start off in, in their very beginning and their very infancy of being, they, they, everyone's pretty equal. There's not a big wealth gap between this, the, the different classes. But as time goes on and as the government pumps more money into a system, that money is, is more favorably distributed to the upper class than the lower class because they're the ones playing the game. They're the ones that are in the market. So when, when the feds, you know, pump money into the system, it ups one class while the other class doesn't really catch up because they they don't have any skin in the game. So they just stay where they are and the other class increases. And he describes the phenomenon as this just keeps happening until the gap gets so big that it creates all this division and conflict and out of it comes populism, um, which he defines as a, political and social phenomenon that appeals to ordinary people who feels that their concerns are not being addressed by the elites. So it creates populist rulers, which creates 
counter populist politicians and rulers and that's where all the conflict comes from. Now the question is, is the conflict this time, is it going to be violent? Is it going to be peaceful? Is it going to be catastrophic to the economy or is it not going to be big? Like those are all unknowns, but historically it's pretty big. And more interestingly, I'm, I'd like to ask the question, get your take on this. What is the, the pragmatic effects of having this big distribution and wealth between two classes? Like, let's assume that you were in the lower class, but you had no idea that the upper class had so much more money. Like you had no idea that the top 10 of 1% had as much money as the bottom 90%. Like, would that still affect your life in any meaningful way? Or what, where's the, what's the problem with that? Yeah, I think that is a really good question. And I, and I, I think what's something that's hard to put in perspective is you know, who, who really is in the 1% or, you know, bigger percentage, you know, whatever it is versus everybody else. I remember Eric Weinstein gives the example of like, if you're on an airplane and you think the people in first class are like the winners, like you're way off. The real winners are the people that have their own private jet on a whole, on a totally different airport. I mean, there is, there is extreme gaps of wealth in this country. Now I will, I will start by saying this. I, I still, I'm in the class of people in the, are not bad, bad word to use in the, in the category of people who is less concerned with wealth distribution and more concerned with, uh, from the point of view of like a social safety net, do the bottom, whatever percentage of people are they, are, do they have services, et cetera, that, uh, allow them to, to live, uh, you know, healthy and, uh, productive lives. That's, that, that's still my concern. Um, I, I, I don't personally see a moral hazard in large gaps of wealth. What I do see a moral hazard in is the way that large gaps of wealth can be made. And getting back to your point about skin in the game, it, it seems unfair to me that we can have situations where people can take on a ton of risk and benefit from that risk. But if they make a bad choice and get punished by that risk, and sometimes the taxpayers find themselves on the hook. And you know, that, that to me is a real moral hazard. It's, it's, do you have skin in the game? Are you, are you responsible for your wins? Are you responsible for your losses? And kind of one of the ideas that I was toying around with, I know, and I don't know if you've heard this, I've heard this from, from a few people, but there's, there's some debate over, you know, the actual role that, you know, top executives actually have in their company's performance. You know, some people argue that it's not really that much of an effect. What I would say is this, Top executives and companies, especially large multinationals, are paid a ton of money. Here's what I would say. If you're a big CEO, you ought to stipulate before you're hired precisely what percentage you think you are responsible for a company's wins and for a company's losses. And if the company does well, you should be rewarded in proportion to the amount that you set up front, you are responsible for that wealth creation. And if they do poorly, you should actually lose money in proportion to how much you say you're responsible for it. If you take a ton of responsibility for your company's success, then by all means, make a ton of money, have the yacht, have the whatever. But if you do not do well, then I also don't, then I don't want to hear that you're still being paid at high CEO levels. And uh, in fact, you know, that was kind of covered in the book I was mentioning a moment ago from uh, Alex Barents and uh, the number that, you know, these executives are being paid tons of money almost regardless of whatever their performance was. Now, that doesn't seem fair to me. And it certainly leads to, to income inequality. But I think the bigger problem is 
how come they're never punished? How come they're never held responsible? So back to the point about skin in the game, to me, that's where my focus goes. Not so much on, on inequality per se, or, or uh, income inequality per se, but did you make it in a way that you were truly on the line for your losses and also for your wins? If you were, then I don't have a problem with it. If you were not, then I do. So can you achieve that, that type of meritocracy by just giving more, more, uh, more assets, more equity to the CEOs? Like instead of paying them via salary, pay them in, in equity because then if the company does well, they do well and then vice versa. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you can. I think you need to be careful about how it's done. Uh, and, and, and the number, Alex goes over a few examples where you know, some of those stock options actually can, can still be gamed by the CEOs. But I think ideally that, that is what you would want. Uh, I mean, you would want them to have some kind of buy-in. I think maybe one way of doing it is that you know, if, they, if they have stock options, you require that they hold on to, 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 to the stock for so many years after they leave the company even, that you really have to focus them on having really long-term investment in the company's growth over you know, many, many years. Um, but I, I, I do think in general, rewarding them. And, and, and in fact, I think that that's you know, more or less done now is that you, you do pay people with stock and the idea is that that aligns their interest with the company's interest. And you know, that, would, that would never be perfect, but I, I do like uh, things moving in that direction because you want to remove perverse incentives and you especially want to remove ways where where CEOs can benefit from a company doing poorly and um and unfortunately in in the book you know he goes over some at least I would say hypotheticals of how that could that that could occur if you have a bad incentive structure in place yeah like look at people like Elon Musk for example he's worth or, or Bezos you know they're right. worth 50 billion plus but how much of that money is in cash versus how much right. of it is in their their companies. You know, I, don't, I don't know the exact numbers, but yeah. I'd imagine that it's a lot. Like Elon Musk' net worth probably can fluctuate tens of billions of dollars a day just based on Tesla stock. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I and I I think that that if you're the CEO and you're the head of the ship, you know, if I were a shareholder, that's where I would want the CEO to be. I would want them to be focused on driving shareholder profits, not their own personal profits, and. Um, like, like you're saying, having, you know, these people that are, that are worth a lot of money, even though their salaries might be quite small compared to what they're doing, paying them in stocks can, can help fight against uh, some, some bad incentives. And I, I think one more benefit for someone like, like an Elon Musk, probably like a Jeff Bezos as well. I, I don't know him. I, I don't know his story or his philosophy as well, but certainly a driving force for Elon Musk, who is a real belief in what they're doing which I think is important too. And I think that's another part of the incentive for long-term investment is, is really believing in the mission of the company. I mean, Elon really, really wants to get people to Mars. And uh, if they happen to be driving electric cars when they get there, you know, all the better. But like that kind of belief in, in a long-term goal, I think is important too. And uh, seeing someone like an Elon Musk with that drive, uh, I, I think it's, it's something that I, I, would, I would suspect shareholders like seeing that as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always seemed a little bit weird to me that Elon Musk, cause he's very, he's very goal driven. I want to say like he has these big visions that he's going for. So it, it's always surprised me that he's been so successful in the companies he does own because especially with the automotive industry, like entering the automotive industry, that's not an easy thing to do, especially when automotive industry in the U S has been so shitty for so long, but he can walk into it and it, 
it seems like he's got to be so distracted with all these other companies and everything and all these other visions that I don't understand how he has the time to make these companies successful that historically haven't been. Like, I don't know. Is it just pure optimism? Does he just get the right people in the right places? Like, why, why is he able to succeed in these areas with, you know, fractions of his time that other CEOs like GM uh, can't th- uh, even stay afloat in? Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I suspect Elon will be studied for many years and many an MBA course. But I mean, one, one thing I like about Elon is that, and I don't, I guess I'm, I'm not even sure how to, how to quantify it, but the fact that he is an outsider, like you're saying, maybe that gives him an edge that he went from just being, you know, from PayPal, which had nothing to do with cars to I'm going to make an electric vehicle. And maybe coming at it from that point of view, just totally out of left field. He didn't have any, any of the bad habits that maybe he would have gained if he worked at a GM or at a, at a Ford. He was able to have such a fresh take on it that in other areas, people might have said, well, that can't be done. You know, we tried it before. It doesn't work. You know, having some of that, like you're saying, optimism, I'm even saying blind spots possibly that it is because he didn't know about certain failures perhaps, or he didn't have certain institutional knowledge. And maybe that gave him an, uh, a, a bit of a benefit. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I can see that. Like he wasn't aware of certain blind spots, so he effectively just ignored them and plowed through them. Yeah. And, 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 and certainly I, I, I imagine he is a very good judge of talent, that he's able to find good people to hire and people to help run these companies. Um, but also I, I, I come back to the point too. I think, you know, when you look at Elon and you listen to him talk, I mean, he really – believes in this. And I, I think that there are people who are inspired by that. And, you know, if you have a culture where that's, that's, you know, the, the expectation is that we're here to change the world, then, you know, that, that, that probably has some impact on people as well. Um, I, I, I imagine it's very hard to work for Elon. I imagine he has very high expectations of his, of his workers. And I, I imagine to, to thrive in that kind of environment, you probably need to like it really well. So maybe there's like a selection bias as well. But like, if you make it through, you're going to do really, really well because you made it through in the first place. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, he, you were talking about how he judges talent and finds talent. I know that on Twitter, maybe you've seen this before. It's not uncommon for him to just like post like job recs, basically. Right. Like opening well, it, 10,000 new positions in Germany, like sending your resume. And people are like, what, what degrees are you looking for? He's like, oh, it doesn't matter. Just looking for yeah. I, and, and I want to build on that point because you're right. He did at one point was saying, you know, we're going to not care that much about degrees, basically. You know, I won't remember the exact phrasing, but it was something like that. And I, I really liked hearing that because why <laughs> someone – I can imagine that there's, there are people who don't have college degrees, but have been tinkering around in their garage for however many years. That would be a great fit for someone like Elon to, you know, build the next car or something. And, you know, maybe they're lacking some credential that says they have this knowledge, but it's like, you know, it's nice to hear that people like Elon are seeing past that credentialism and thinking, you know, if you got this stuff, you got the stuff. And that's really what I care about at the end of the day. Yeah. And to close on this point, or on this this piece, um, does it it does it make sense to believe that this AI and this this increased computing speed and the internet and just advanced communication that we have 
does it make sense to believe that this is something that can have a large impact on these age-old adages or age-old beliefs like the long-term debt cycle occurring every hundred years, you know, under these given circumstances? Um, does it make sense to believe that or is this just a completely different world that we're living in now than, than just a few decades earlier? I think it's a great question. I, I, I'm, I, I would wonder what, what Ray would say about that. Here would be my armchair answer. Uh, for as much as technology has changed things, at the end of the day, people I do not think have changed that much. And we still have our biases. We still have our, uh, our imperfect brains that are trying to make sense of a world that we are, in fact, I would say, increasingly unsuited for. So as more and more technology comes our way, we're more and more living in a foreign world. And I, I don't want that to sound too pessimistic. I mean, I was listening to, to Daniel Kahneman talk the other day about, you know, this thinking fast, thinking slow thing. And he said something that I thought was nice. You know, someone basically said, look, you know, you're saying that we have these intuitive minds. It's like we're done for. And he's like, well, not really. I mean, look, as a species, we, we've done pretty well. And we've been thinking this way for a long time. And yet, look at how far we've come. And so that I, I like that answer. What was that? We're undefeated. We're undefeated, right? We're, we're, we're our Earth's global champs. I mean, we're, we're doing pretty well. So I, I understand what he means by that. And I don't want to be too cynical or too pessimistic about, you know, what we perceive as limitations of the human mind. And I would, I would say not limitations per se, but what they were designed for. But I still think it's true that even though we do have more computing power at our disposal, in a way, we're making the world more foreign to what we were evolved to deal with. And so because we still have our, our, our biases intact, because we still have these age-old problems that, we, that we're still dealing with, I mean, it, we're, we still deal with jealousy. We still deal with nations not getting along. We still deal with people thinking for themselves and for other people, you know, balancing selfishness versus selflessness. So in, in a way, the problems that we encounter as a society are very much the same that we've had forever. And I, I, I certainly think that technology will have some impact, but I'm not ready to, to completely write off the idea that we have somehow escaped our, our, uh, our history. I think that, that we're very much still uh, living living with problems that we have almost always had. And to the extent that those problems create the cycle that Ray is talking about, then I would, I would suspect that his insight is still valuable. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I think that's likely the most likely outcome. But it's interesting to look at things from the frame that now that AI is a thing and that it's becoming more and more popular, uh, it's effectively a new species and it's effectively changing the frame of reference from this may no longer be human history moving forward. This may be our Frankenstein creations history moving forward, which would be a paradigm shift, but I, I don't know. It's time will tell, I suppose. Yes, I, I agree in that. And you make a good point too. I mean, it's like, the phrase, you know, history repeats itself, or I, I think that, that, that that's too simplistic. I mean, I, 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 for, I, I think that there have been changes in technology that have fundamentally changed the course of human history. Absolutely. I mean, even like something like, you know, purified water, right? Like that had some kind of big change as well. Like, 
it is i i agree that we are living in a different time now and that it would be a mistake to write off the the, the social implications for ai and for even just things like social media i mean even if social media didn't even have an ai component to it it would still be revolutionary to talk to people on the other side of the world about events happening in real time between people that have never met each other. That alone would be enough to cause some sort of, of um, disruption in how information spreads. So I, I agree with you that um, for, for however much we are, we are still living with our old problems, we are absolutely changing the world that we live in. And I, I think it would be a mistake to not look for, for future things that may not even happen yet because of advances in technology. I think that, that is a really good point. Yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting next couple of decades. It's going to be an interesting century. Hopefully I'll be around for, you know, two, maybe three-fourths of it or something. I'll have to see. But the, the part that doesn't make me too worried about it is that violence is really going down over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's, like, no wars now really to speak of like you hear about middle east peace deals coming up like recently morocco uh, decided to be diplomatic with israel and even our protests like despite how many people are involved in these protests happening whether it's the blm side or the maga side there's only like one or two deaths on record really of all the protests so those are pretty small numbers and i think they indicate that that whatever happens may be uh more peaceful than violent, whatever change, because the system's got to give in some way. But the, the question is, is it, is it going to be World War III? Is it going to be the apocalypse? Or is it just going to be some, some uh, I don't know, digital display of revolution? Yeah, and I, and I think you make a good point about violence. I, I certainly agree with you on that point. I am not worried about civil war or things of that sort. What I, what I am more interested in and what I, what I do want to see is I want to see smaller groups of people, preferably at the local level, take some matters into their own hands a little bit. I would like to see that shift, that I would like to see more decentralization and how we solve problems. And I would like to see more community level engagement in solving problems that are devastating. I mean, take, take your poison, you know, whether it's education, whether it's drug problems, whether it's unemployment, lack of infrastructure, things of whatever that sort is. I, I, I would like to see a shift where we have more of those problems being dealt with at a local level. And I think if you, if you work with your neighbor on solving a problem and you come to some kind of satisfactory conclusion, I think people working together is a, is a way to, to, to stave off violence as well. And I, you know, what I am hoping we see more of is that if people are dissatisfied with DC for whatever reason, that that turns into, well, what, what can I do right now to improve some, to, to, to improve something? And that was kind of uh, Peter Thiel's takeaway message. I was just, um, give a talk with somebody about not revolution per se, but it, tied, it, it did touch on that. And Peter Thiel was saying, look, we are, are, are waiting on things to change in the political sphere, but I don't know that we need to. I think that we can just start doing things. He gave the example of Elon Musk. Like, how do we get to Mars? Like, you start building rocket ships. Like, that's how you get to Mars. And I think there's, there's, there's power in that kind of thinking. It doesn't work for every problem, but I, 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 I do think it's, it's a worthwhile thought exercise of when you're faced with a problem that appears to be political in nature, 
maybe the first question is, how can this problem be solved without ever having to get politics involved? Yeah, and that, that's, that's the tricky part, though, because the government exists to exist. So in right. effect, it, it, has to, it has to budge in and put its nose where it's not welcomed or where it's not even needed a lot of times, because that's just, that's just the nature of government. So that's tough to go against, but interesting. Peter Thiel also was a coworker of Elon Musk, right? Like they right, also- right, PayPal. Yeah, Pay, PayPal is a company I'm, I, I've gotten. So my, my brother works in, in kind of, you know, that, that business world a little bit. And so he's gotten me interested in reading some books about, you know, different things like, you know, whether it's finance or, 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 or business. And I, I have to say, I mean, I, I find it now that I've read a couple, I, I find it more interesting. I, I enjoyed the book number by Alex Berenson. I'm, I'm kind of working on putting together a, a larger uh, presentation for the podcast that, that will do. I, I want to spend some time with that book. I really enjoyed it quite a bit and definitely some good lessons in that book, specifically about what we were talking about last time with trust versus transparency. Um, that, that certainly applies to the world of corporate finance. And uh, I think a really interesting uh, overlap there. And, but another on that note about Peter Thiel and about Elon Musk, a company that I would like to learn more about is, is PayPal because I, I don't know about you, but I remember hearing about PayPal and I'm being like, I don't even know what that company does. I, I still don't really know what they do. I mean, I understand they're involved with, uh, you know, online transactions of some sort, but I mean, I remember hearing about PayPal and I was like much younger going like, what does it even do? Like people would like every now and then be like, yeah, we do PayPal. I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, I don't even know what this company does. Yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy that that was Elon Musk's first company and it was coincidentally started with Peter Thiel and became massively successful and is the preferred way of paying for things online now. So that a lot of genius behind it. Um, Side note, uh, Peter Thiel recently, I guess this is an older company. It's been 10 years old, but it just had its IPO. It's called Palantir. Right. Palantir. You heard of it? Yes. Okay. So yeah, it's been, I've been putting a lot of money in that company recently. Oh, good. And it's been doing super well, but again, maybe it could just be hype, but I think that it does have the potential to be a big long-term company, mainly because Peter Thiel's behind it. Sure. Also, information systems, AI, feels like a safe bet. Yeah, he. he I, I've heard him talking about Palantir a couple of times, and uh, I I enjoy how he describes that. Basically, you know, you want to you want the government to be good with uh, data that they do have, so that they kind of need less of it. And he basically gives the example of like how the the uh, Keystone cops leads to 1984 because they're so bad at their job that they always collect more and more information from you. And so actually the Palantir got brought up on the panel that I was listening to him talk about uh, a little bit. And um, it was interesting to hear uh, what the company does. And um, yeah, definitely a book that I would, re- would recommend to our listeners to read would be zero to one, uh, which is a book by Peter Thiel. And that book to me captures some of some really important ideas for navigating uh, the world of having to compete with like large companies and whatever it is, is that this idea for, for looking for secrets, for looking for innovation, looking for technology, rather than trying to improve upon a thing that already exists, look for new things. You know, I think we've given this question before, but basically like his question is always, 
what thing do you know to be true that nobody else knows is true? You know, and that's kind of where you start this idea of brainstorming uh, a company or an idea is this idea that there is value in secrecy, which I think is a really, really powerful idea that, um, you know, I, I, since reading that book, I've been spending more time thinking about, but prior to reading it, I, I wouldn't have thought about it that much. Yeah, I definitely want to read that book. Your brother was supposed to send it to me actually, but he never did. Well, I'll, I'll get on him. I'll, he'll have to get it. I, I, that was one of the few books I read on my Kindle. And as soon as I read it on my Kindle, I thought, I, I wish I had a hard copy so I could go back and like revisit pages of it and stuff. And, uh, but maybe a copy of it. But yeah, it's a great book. I recommend it to people. Um, really some powerful ideas, specifically with the idea of zero to one, looking for secrets. I mean, that, that is such, hmm. such a good idea. And in fact, we were talking about this with, with Elon Musk, but why was he able to make this car company that other companies couldn't? It, it really could have been because he was more open to looking for secrets than other big companies were. That they had their own culture, they had their own institutions, they weren't going to here comes Elon Musk and the boom, you know, brand new, you know, hottest, you know, car market, you know, everyone wants a Tesla, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, the, the idea of looking for, for secrets is, uh, I think a really interesting idea for how, you know, anybody can compete because really probably everybody knows something better. Yeah. There's, there, there's probably something in your life that you're actually really, really good at, but from your point of view, maybe it isn't, doesn't appear to be that valuable, but maybe it actually is. And you know, lo looking for things like that in life, I think are, are, is, is definitely worthwhile because you know, this, this goes all the way back to episode number one, right? The idea that there's only ever going to be one you and that because of that, you are, you know, this rare thing that has value and has perspective that no one else will ever, 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 ever be able to duplicate. And so you have it within yourself to find, you know, these secrets that, that can be uh, beneficial to you and uh, beneficial really to everybody else. Because, you know, ultimately that's how you drive growth or drive success is you, you satisfy the needs of the customers. And so uh, I, I really, I would encourage people to read that book zero to one it definitely covers some of those, those, those same ideas as well. Yeah. And just one, one more point that Ray Dalio brought up that I thought was really interesting uh, in terms of success and in terms of creativity specifically. He says that he says that he has a model that the mind, there's two minds working. There's the, the rational prefrontal cortex portion of the mind. And then there's the, the subliminal subconscious amygdala brainstem, more primitive part of it. And that the, rational mind produces no creativity creativity does not come from the prefrontal cortex so which makes sense because if you've ever tried to like think of something profound like on the spot it's just never going to happen you're just going <laughs> to piss yourself off it's like one of the worst pains in humanity is to try to come up with some creative um and he says that's the reason why a lot of good ideas you know like come like in the shower or like when you're just sitting there doing nothing like they, they just dawn upon you so it's kind of this idea of using yourself as an antenna to bring in these ideas and get them out there rather than just like really just trying and grunting and trying to get them out, force them out, uh, focusing on creativity in that respect, which is super interesting to me because I've never heard it described to me as succinctly as that. It definitely makes sense to me. I mean, it's, you know, be creative. Okay, 
you know, if it were that easy, then if, if it were something that you could learn or something, you know, it would be easier to do. I mean, yeah. I, I, I certainly think that, you know, whether writing or, you know, whatever idea you're talking about, I mean, even like for work, it's like when you're not working on something is when you have this idea to like solve a problem. So, I mean, I definitely have had that experience before and uh, it doesn't make sense that, you know, part, part of imagination has to be challenging the status quo, which is like in a way, not irrational, but it seems irrational. It's like, why would I, if it works, why would I challenge it? Like you almost need a little bit of imagination to see things for how they currently are not, to imagine how they could be. And so it would make sense that you would need creativity and a kind of a less rational mind to get into that framework to see things as they might be not as, as they are. Yeah, you'll, you'll see a lot of these successful people that are very, very critical of the status quo, like Kanye, for example. He's very critical of everything that is man-made versus everything that's just a, a real truth, hmm. right? So governments, systems, just the idea that, oh, we've always done it that way. Uh, he's, people are very, these creative people are very critical of those ideas. They don't, they're not bandwagoners. They don't easily believe them. They have to, they have to have a lot of evidence to believe them or they're just by default critical of, of, of these human structures that have been put in place. Yeah. And just on that kind of the idea of creativity as well. I, one of the things that Nassim Pelepso was talking about is, you know, when you're writing a book, it's like almost all walking, like going on long walks is a great way to come up with ideas. And, you know, it, rather than being at a desk, like walking is this, you know, place of finding all this inspiration. So I, I, I that seems to tie in with kind of what Ray Dalio is saying too, about this idea of creativity coming from, you know, somewhere else, not the rational focused mind, but, you know, allowing your mind to wander and allowing your mind to imagine. Um, it would, I, I would like to think, and I, maybe I would wonder, you know, what, what can teachers do at a young age to encourage kids to develop that skill of being creative? Now, we often talk about the skill of critical thinking, which is obviously important. We want people to be able to, 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 think, to think through things in a logical manner. But we also want, if, if, if it can be done, we would also want, I think, kids to learn how to be creative. And I wonder uh, if Ray, does he offer any insight to how you might teach or foster creativity in the classroom? Well, he, one thing he did say is that he's been, he's a, he's a meditator and he's been doing uh, transcendental meditation for the past 44 years, probably 50 years at this point, because that interview was a few years old. But he says he accredits a lot of his creativity to, to that. And just the act of being able to quiet your conscious prefrontal cortex type mind and allowing the volume of the, the unconscious mind to speak up. He says that that's been had an impact on his creativity, um, which also that would also make sense why drugs are helpful for people to be creative because they they depress your rational faculties and allow more uh, reliance on your subliminal subconscious mind. Sounds good. Did you have a closing thought or statement you wanted to do to to wrap up Ray Dalio? I have not read that book Principles, but I, it is on my list, and like I said, it comes up on. I want to say Bill Gates has it on his reading list, and I'm sure other people of that ilk have it on their reading list as well, because uh, like Joe was saying, obviously a very influential investor and uh, knows his stuff. So I'm going to add that book to my 2021 reading list, and uh, maybe after I read the book, we can come back and revisit him again. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great book on, 
how the market works on just overall strategy for business and success in life. Uh, I'd also heavily recommend this Tony Robbins Money Mastering the Game or Unshakable. They're kind of the same book, but yeah, he he brings up the idea of if you're not putting money in the market, you're you're not in the game. If you have no skin in the game and you're adding unnecessary years of life to the workforce that you don't need to. Which is something that none of us should be doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Work smarter, not harder. Remember? That's right. Right, 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 right. No, I, I like, I like that. I like, I like, uh, you know, this idea of skin in the game and, you know, taking, you know, putting, you know, making, making risks and, and I know I, to, to me, it all comes down to accountability. Now, skin in the game is accountability. And uh, I, I, I like that point that you were talking about earlier about, um, about that aspect of accountability, that if you're making a risk, you ought to be risking yourself. And if you're not, you know, if you're not doing anything and, and have no impact, then, you know, be careful how much credit you take for the work that's, that's being done. So I, I, I like that as well. And that, again, we, you know, all these people, you know, Nassim, Ray Dalio, Tony Robinson, I mean, we, you see these all these ideas kind of connecting, and so to me that that gives them a little bit more weight when we have multiple smart people saying similar things that align with each other very well. Yeah, it's just it's interesting that no two smart people are identical thinkers, though. True. Thing True. None of them are identical. They can be very different, and they can have a lot of overlap. But to see two great minds that are identical, is, I, I've never seen it. No, and I think that shows just you know I guess a couple of things. One there's so much in the world that you know, everyone's going to have a little bit of a different specialty from other people. But then also it's the idea that even rational, really smart people are going to have disagreements. And if you're in the audience, like, like, like we are, then, you know, it's kind of good because, Hey, we get twice as much reading material. So perfect. We can just more, more people to, to learn from and to, to assess accurately and to, to, to see when they're good, when they're bad and, and mix and match and all, all, all sorts of stuff. Okay, should we move into your piece? Yes, let's do it. It's very good. So my, my piece today is called Conscription of the Soul. <clears throat> Somewhere in the desert sand, a shadow of me lingers on the trail, searching for something, or perhaps just searching for an excuse to wander. Among the mountains and nature, in the dusty Martian landscape, my eyes look outward forward, beyond. I look for something. I hope I find it. It will be fun. A phrase never as convincing as the orator would hope. A couple of days out from the Tour de Tucson, a bicycle race, my brother and I were walking around a bike swap looking for a bike for him to ride. As for my ride, well, it was a decent commuter bike, fit for the casual cruise around the university campus. But a bike for the race? Well, who am I kidding? I don't possess the physical abilities to push any bike to its physical limitations. After a couple of hours of shopping, we came across a decent street bike for around 100 bucks. The next stop, a bicycle repair shop. Now, you've never gotten a good deal until you've paid cash for bicycle repair. 20 bucks rebuilds the entire bike, and it makes sense. These repair people aren't spending any money on hygiene, and I imagine they bike most places, keeping their cost of living down. Is there a branch of behavioral economics 
that analyzes the different living patterns of people in different industries. We all hear about the cost of living between different cities. What about the cost of living for different lifestyles? Can I pay you less if you live in a van with roommates? With a bike purchased, we were headed to the race. The morning of, we woke up and got dropped off early by our mother. We took the Isuzu Ombre, a truck. The Isuzu Ombre was street legal, the way that you can legally take steroids in a weightlifting competition. Much rides are not getting caught. This truck came equipped with folding seats behind the driver and passenger, folding chairs, as if somebody designing the vehicle just had a religious experience at a barbecue. We were dropped off at the event with some time to kill. We decided to buy to a nearby McDonald's. A full rundown of a proper McDonald's ordering is beyond the scope of this class. For now, let's just establish that the pancake breakfast is an absolutely terrible order. Keep to the McGriddles, and of course, double up on hash browns. After a full meal, we needed to rush back to the starting line. As what would end up being a harbinger for things to come, we approached the traffic light and it changed. My brother braked hard and I ran into him. Slam and crash. Welcome to the morning show. But the show must go on. And go on it did. We made it back to the starting line and prepared for the race. At moments like these, many questions float around in your head. A question that is never productive immediately before a multi-hour event is the question of, do I need to go to the bathroom? Completely irrelevant because it was not a possibility. As it stood, I had never been more hydrated in my entire life. I was a water balloon on top of this steel beast. I was reminded of a time when I was younger, rushing home on a bike to pee. Only I didn't make it. About halfway home, the gentle spray caught the tailwind of my drift and splashed into a million beads of urine. I really hoped that it didn't happen again. Bang, the, right, the race began. And with a blink of an eye, bikers of all stripes began awkwardly putting their machines in motion. The race got off to a decent start. My brother and I were nearby each other for close to half a mile. He was waiting patiently to make a move and get ahead of the pack. He got up on the saddle and began to accelerate. Then another bang. A misfire? A terrorist attack? Disgruntled employee? No, a bike tire. His bike tire. We pulled over, unsure of the next move. Then a flash of genius. Here, I said, take my bike. And just like that, I had gotten out of the race. It was a perfect ending. I got to be the hero. Until, out of nowhere, some son of a bitch shows up to spoil the whole day. A bicycle repairman strolling throughout the race, repairing flats for free. Terrific. Who the hell does this guy think he is? Trying to get me back in the race? Never underestimate iatrogenics, the harm done by the healer. Without an excuse, I hopped on the repaired bike, but this bike lacked the creature comforts of my bike, namely a seat that didn't double as a shoehorn. So I called my brother, informed him of the good news, swapped back bikes at the next stop. And so it was, a scenic ride through the Martian landscape.
I did not need to go anywhere. I simply enjoyed the ride until I came to the next rest stop. Lightning never strikes the same place twice. If it does, stay far away from that spot because it will probably strike there again. At the rest stop, my brother was patiently waiting again, another flat tire. This time, I had no reason to give up my bike. We were halfway through the race. There was no chance of getting picked up and avoiding the whole thing. We were in the middle of nowhere. The only way out was to finish the race. So we waited for a repairman to show up and fix the tire. Then he was back off, and I would be too, after I finished my second slushie at the rest stop. The mistake wasn't biking after a full breakfast. It was continuing to eat along the ride. A few hours into the race, and I encountered my first incentive to pedal faster, the specifics of which are left to the reader's imagination. So I pedaled and pedaled. No more rest stops. No more breaks. I needed to reach indoor plumbing quickly. My first ray of hope came when I saw the stretch of highway. I knew that meant I was almost finished. At that moment, I also realized that the police had abandoned the race. Fitting. Those who remained didn't deserve the protection afforded by officers guiding traffic on the highway. Funny thing about highways, they don't have bike lanes. And funny thing about truck drivers, they don't give a fuck about bike riders. But I continued to pedal as fast as I could, flashbacks of my childhood bike ride fresh in my memory. For a total of eight hours, I pedaled 40 miles of harsh desert terrain. For the mathematically curious, though not inclined, that works out to five miles per hour, somewhere between a brisk walk and a jog. I was making good time. In fact, I remember passing another McDonald's, deciding to keep stride and finish the race instead of stopping. At the McDonald's, I happened to notice two elderly ladies with their bikes sitting up against the wall outside. They were taking insulin shots. I turned my head and looked behind me. There was no one. I looked back over at the ladies and saw them getting back on their bikes. No. When you find yourself neck and neck with two old ladies still dripping blood from their insulin shots, you realize that life is not a summation of past events. It is a foot race with destiny, with your pride on the line. Who I had been up until that point no longer mattered. What mattered is that I beat this old bitch in a bike race. And I did, crossing the line in style. I parked my bike and found the nearest bathroom. I didn't think about the race for much of the following days. That was until they published the results in the newspaper. Clear as day, in black and white, my name, third from last. I was immortal. What does it mean for something to exist? Where do things really come from? I don't know. Somewhere in the past, I am still riding in the desert, racing towards a bathroom, towards salvation. Abandon me in the ocean of life and watch me swim to shore. Watch me float aimlessly in space, grinning at the privilege. Wherever I am, I am home. Very good, very good. Thank you. Now, is this a, I'd like to talk more about your your bicycle career and racing in general. 
Yeah. Um, where does this particular race, the Tour de Tucson, fit in with that? Yeah, uh, one and only. I've only done one bike race in my professional career as an amateur in Tour de Tucson. And after getting third from last place, I decided to hand to hang up my my helmet, as it were, and uh, never bike competitively ever again. Um, I, I I have to say, I really have never looked back on that decision. Um, there wasn't much temptation, you know. I've my my parents have been disappointed in me, but never at the level of disgust as when they saw my name third from last in that paper. That was that was a low point in my in my young adulthood life. What was their reaction? How did that conversation go down? It was one word. My dad read the paper, looked at me, and said, "Awful." And then we moved on to something else. That was that was all that was all that it took for me to realize I sh I should never bike again in a way that's being recorded for the public to see. So if you came in third from last, uh, who came in second from last and last? Were these the, the ladies at the McDonald's that were? It had to be. Yeah, and 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 I I say insulin. It, it, for all I know, it could have been you know performance enhancing drugs. Right. Yeah. You know, Ed. Could have been, but I, I it was insulin. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, like I said, and I, I beat both of them. I want to make that very clear. I third from last, so I beat both of them, but, uh, you know, it was, it was neck and neck at the end. It really was. And how, how did your brother end up doing in the race? He did quite well. Um, you know, I don't remember his time, you know, where, where he actually placed, you know, wasn't that great because, uh, you know, he had those, those two bicycle mishaps along the way, but, um, you know, in terms of his actual pace, I think he did, I think he did pretty well. Uh, you know, he ran cross country, ran track, and uh, he was gifted with that, with, with the gift of endurance. I have asthma, so I was gifted with uh, a sense of humor, I guess. I'm not sure. A sense of humor and an inhaler. And an inhaler, which is always fun to put out at a party. You know, I, I remember being young and plugging in a nebulizer, this giant air compressor with a mask you have to wear. Uh, nothing, nothing says, uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of the cool kids, like, uh, you know, a, a nebulizer at a, at a party, so. Good times. Uh, you were talking about the a particular demographic of people that work as bicycle repairmen. Right, right, and yeah. and women, and women, and, and and women, sure. Yeah. And you describe them as unique in certain ways. Yeah. Um. Now, I, I would like to draw a comparison between them and maybe people that overall, in general, work with metal. Oh, right. Any, any consistencies there, correlations? You know, one of the one of the the oldest correlations pointed out with workplace behavior is of course by the the great Adam Carolla and you know, you and I grew up listening to that and you know, he had this idea that the closer you work to metal, it, not that it causes problems, but it, it 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 tends to correlate with with certain characteristics. Mm -hmm. And I I would say that that observation holds pretty pretty true for the bicycle repair shop you know every every now and then and let's let's be fair every now and then you do come across you know the the clean cut shaven uh bicycle repair person but they're few and far between you know typically you're gonna have long hair dreadlocks tattoos and a beard uh and those are the women so i mean really i i think that the that the comparison holds holds pretty true myself and uh Definitely has been my experience, but I will say this again: great bargain. I mean, you have never seen money go as far as you have at a bicycle repair shop. I mean, twenty dollars. I mean, my God, we rebuilt the whole bike. I mean, it was incredible. 
yeah and, and so so quickly too on short notice it sounds like yes yes okay now you you talked about you talked about the the Isuzu ombre oh my goodness yes i especially liked your and the analogy you made to driving street legal in the ombre is equivalent to a bodybuilder not getting caught for drugs right right I enjoyed that analogy, but I didn't quite understand. You said there was something about the folding chair in the ombre. Can you yeah, it, yeah, and the, the, this is a crucial, crucial point. You don't see these anymore in cars, but back in the day, you know, you had these things called a rumble seat. So what these were, these were, these were, these were, were chairs that were perpendicular to the driver's seat and the passenger seat, meaning that if you were sitting behind the passenger your legs would actually spread from one side of the car to the other side of the car. So you weren't, you weren't sitting facing out, out, of the, uh, out of the windshield, you were facing the side of the car. And these chairs would fold up into you know, the uh, side. And, so, and, there, and there were two of these, one behind the driver, one behind the passenger. And so you know, these seats would, would fold down like a lawn chair and you would be sitting behind the passenger or behind the driver's seat. And of course you had no leg room because there was another human being sitting across from you that also was a normal, you know, they, they took up space as well. And so, I mean, it was, it was a very bizarre layout. Um, and I, I can't imagine that um, the various agencies that raid vehicle safety, that those are still looked upon favorably. I imagine they're falling out of fashion. Yeah. It's hard to imagine what would happen during a collision. Like, do you even have seatbelts for that or? I mean, you have a seatbelt, but I think it's, you know, probably just for academic purposes. I can't imagine that lap belt doing much. I mean, basically your main safety component for that seat is that you have nowhere to go. I mean, you are wedged between the back of the cabin of the truck and the, and the, the backrest of the seat in front of you. I mean, you are wedged in place. So, you know, I think your, 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 your safety is more in the fact that you can't really move anywhere. There is a lap belt, but I think it's probably just to, uh, you know, check a box off of some form somewhere. It's a box to check on the, the quality inspection. Of, yeah. If there is one, <laughs> the Isuzu Ombre on the assembly line. Um, okay, and then I, another question. Uh, you said that the race was long. You said that it took you eight hours to complete. Right, right. Now, what is the normal bathroom strategy for the racers like do some people just do the whole thing without pit stops do some people stop every hour are you forced to stop what's the how does that yeah that's that's a good question i i stopped at every rest stop up to a point mostly to eat which i think i touched on in, in the piece that was a mistake and i can look back and admit that that was a mistake it was a mistake to eat along a 40 mile bike race um <laughs> i would imagine that the professionals just don't stop. You know, the, the 40 mile bike race was itself a truncated version of the actual bike race that went on for much longer. And so I'm not sure how often that they're, they're stopping that they maybe, you know, like Toby Flinderson does in the office, you know, maybe they take an emodium or something to avoid the bathroom entirely. I'm not sure, but that's probably what I would do. Probably what I should do anyways. But with, with, with the 40 mile bike race, you know, getting a slushy every stop was definitely a mistake. This absolutely a mistake, but I, I, how I, I couldn't know that ahead of time. I had to, I had to learn that lesson and, and believe me, I learned that lesson. Sure. Sure. Some, some lessons are easier than others. Um, McGriddle, that was your meal of choice. That was your mid race yes. race meal of choice. 
Yeah. Uh, first of all, does McGriddle still exist? And why is it superior to, say, the McMuffin, or even better, the sausage McMuffin? Yeah, sausage McMuffin definitely, de definitely good. Let me, let me, let me take a step back and, and let me clarify a couple of things. My main focus is to draw people's attention to the idea that you should never, under any circumstance, be ordering the pancake breakfast. Under any circumstance, should you be ordering the pancake breakfast? If you're going to McDonald's, you either want to get a McMuffin or a sausage McMuffin or an egg and cheese and ham McMuffin or the bacon. I mean, uh, McMuffins are great. I think that the griddle, where else are you going to go where the bread is infused with syrup? I mean, it's just such a, it's just such a unique, I mean, we were, we were talking earlier about Peter Thiel and about secrets. That, that invention for McDonald's might've been the latest culinary breakthrough literally since sliced bread. I think it might've gone sliced bread and then ate that slice and put syrup in it. Wow. I mean, that was something. So definitely a, a secret that has been valuable for McDonald's. But I do want to say that I, I, I think there are other good options. Really, the key thing is to, like I said, double up on hash browns and avoid the pancake breakfast. Avoid the pancake breakfast. I would also avoid the orange juice, in my opinion, a little too sweet. But they do have good coffee. I think all of us can be, you know, mature adults and admit that McDonald's has good coffee. The McCafe is, is a good... Uh, pit stop, whether on a road trip or before a big bike race. Yeah, I, I have a, I have a very distinct memory of before taking the ACT after high school, uh, pre-gaming it with McDonald's, right? Getting that McDonald's coffee. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm a hot cakes guy. I, I enjoy the hot cakes. I, I mm -hmm. enjoy the hot cakes with the fake butter and the syrup. Yeah. Um, although how that impacted my test score is up for debate. But at the time, it seemed like a good idea. But McCafe is top notch, definitely. I would, it's up there with Starbucks, maybe. Even absolutely, better. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And 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 the variety is impressive. And my understanding is that the McCafe is is at all hours of the day. Though I could be wrong about that. I mean, it's 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 just such a great add-on to McDonald's. And you know, finding that added value was a stroke of genius for them. And uh, where I think we're all better off for it. Um, and, you know, I, I, again, you know, I, I know that I'm going to get some feedback. I know that we're going to get some controversy for me, you know, attacking the pancake breakfast. I, under, I understand that. I, I understand that. But, you know, I, I have to be honest. I, I think that there, when, you, when it comes to McDonald's, there are some orders that you look at, like, why would people order that? Why would you get a, why would you get a quarter pounder when you get a double quarter pounder? I don't I don't, I think, you know, we're, we're talking about stage five and the inability to, set, to separate truth from falsehood. And part of that is not knowing what's, what's fact and what's opinion. I would go as far to say that it, it is merely a fact, merely a fact, that if you're ordering a quarter pounder, you ought to be doubling up, go to the quarter pounder, and make cheese. that be your order. Right? Yeah, well, of course, absolutely, absolutely, with, 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 with cheese as well. Okay. Now, you mentioned what I think should be the vocabulary word for this podcast, for this episode. I don't remember the word, but you described it as the harm done by the healer. Can you, can you uh, re-articulate that? Yes, the word is eatrogenics. Eatrogenics, and I'll put that in the chat for our listeners. Um, eatrogenics is a word that refers to harm done by healers. It is uh, commonly, it comes up in the medical field 
like side effects, for example, would be eatrogenics. You know, if I, if I tell you, Hey, uh, you know, you get a concussion and I say, you know, take this medicine to fix your concussion, but the medicine acts, you know, ends up, you know, melting your eyeballs or something, you know, that's eatrogenics, you know, side effects of, of, of harm from the healer. And like, no. it's, it, like no practice, but it's not, it's not always uh, like it's on purpose. You know, sometimes it can probably usually would be unintentional. And it's basically this idea that uh, when you're intervening, because you have the possibility of eatrogenics, you should wait to intervene until you have a serious enough condition to override the risks of eatrogenics. And th th this is an idea from Nassim Taleb and anti-fragile, um, this idea of eatrogenics and the idea of, of kind of, uh, you know, taking that into account when deciding on an appropriate course of action for really for anything. And I mean, you know, healing and, and really just intervention would, would be brought into to include this. Um, it goes far beyond just medicine, but just any time that we're intervening in a situation, we want to take account of how is our intervention going to negatively impact this situation? And does our intervention produce enough positive to not only fix the situation as it is, but also for whatever negativity our intervention brings as well. So there's, there, there's two things to weigh when we intervene, you know, what it already is the situation and how our intervention will make it worse. And so that word is eatrogenics and uh, is, a, is a definitely a, a good word for people to know about and to, and to think about. Um, and again, applies to all different levels of our life, you know, macro politics, you know, your personal life, et cetera, has a lot of, a lot, a lot of applicability and a good perspective to take on actions that we engage in. Great. I'm excited to add it to my lexicon. But the next question is, given these eatrogenics, did I say it right? Mm -hmm. Yes, this eatrogenesis, perhaps. Um, why, if he was doing harm by fixing your bike, why, why even do the race in the first place? Yeah, and that was just an example of peer pressure. You know, that's a great question. Why was I even there? And you know, I don't have a good answer. I was there because my brother asked me to be there. My, my mom thought it would be fun, signed both of us up. And honestly, you know, probably the night before I was pretty excited about it. You know, I was like, hey, this could be fun, a nice day, good weather. Maybe it'll be a lot of fun. And then you find yourself in the starting line wearing these extremely uncomfortable biking clothes, these awful fitting shirts and these stupid bicycle pants. And you're realizing I don't want to be here. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody that, that has made a living or even a, a personal habit of physical competition. Um, and I should have taken that more into account when I agreed to do the bike race. And uh, I, I did learn from that. I've never done a bike race since. But, um, you know, it was purely an example of me not giving enough foresight into why I was there and what I was doing. And uh, looking back, I should have tried much harder you have an excuse for not wanting to be there. I, I really should have applied myself more in figuring out how I could have gone out of the bike race, mm -hmm. uh, especially the morning up. And I, looking back, that's my big takeaway. It's always have good excuses on hand for avoiding physical exertion. Okay. And, and that's a great point. And that is a transition into my last question here. What advice would you give? Well, first of all, I'm sure that are, are, uh, you said you, you acted as a great role model for a lot of our listeners about finishing things and mm -hmm. getting to that finish line and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, play, playing, I'm sure you might've played a little dirty with the, the, the ladies that were injecting the insulin, like 
I don't know what it took to get ahead of them, but you've got ahead of them nonetheless. Right. right. Now, what would be your advice to some of our listeners that were that find themselves in similar situations as you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, did I play dirty? Did I, you know, uh, I'm not going to admit that on a, on this public forum right now, you know, I, uh, I'll, I'll, whatever did or didn't happen is, is for me to know and for the people to, uh, to ne- never find out. Um, here's what I would say. If you ever find yourself neck and neck with a race with the elderly, remember something, remember what they went through to get there. They went through the depression. They went through World War II, through Korea. You know, they went through, they, they survived all of these hardships. They have a ton of grit. And so never underestimate the willpower, the sheer willpower of the elderly in succeeding. The only thing that you have as, as someone in their youth to motivate you, aside from just physical dominance, the fact that you're no longer, that they are not old, the only other thing that you really have for your advantage is focusing on how embarrassed you'll be if you lose to them. And that, that has to be the fire in the boiler because if you are motivated by sheer desire to not be embarrassed, as I was, then you can achieve great, great things. Awesome. Very well said. Um, any, any additional closing thoughts on this piece? That does it for, for that piece. And I, I did want to uh, just, again, highlight episode number 10. I mean, we did it, number 10. We've been doing this for 10 weeks in a row. We want to thank our listeners who have been listening to us from the beginning. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Continue to support us. Continue to go on our uh, website, www.rosesandrhetoric.com. We're also on Twitter, at roses underscore rhetoric. And as of recently, Joe, I believe we're also on TikTok. Is that correct? We're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Perfect. That's just what I want to hear. TikTok, it's about time. So let me, let me lay out a couple of things that we have coming up in the, in the new year. You know, we're almost on at 2021. Um, we want to hear back from the audience about different feedback on formatting. You know, we've been trying some different formatting for the show. We would love to hear back from, from people about which formats they prefer, uh, how we can do things on our end. To improve, uh, you know, whether it's audio quality, whether it's uh, how we structure when we do our written pieces versus our, our upfront kind of ad hoc discussion, um, we can do that as well. I'm also going to to say that we, and I, at least for me, and I, I think it goes well. We've tossed around the idea of doing some some more formal, some more long form book reviews. We've kind of done a little bit of that with some with some earlier episodes. I think. In the new year, maybe we'll dedicate a couple of, epi- of, of episodes solely to, you know, one or two books and really doing an in-depth view on the book. Uh, we do a lot of that for the authors, but I think it's important to focus on the actual books themselves. So I have a couple of books that I'm going to uh, do kind of a more long-form review for as well. I'm sure that Joe has some also. And aside from that, some, some really good interviews that we are scheduling for the new year as well. So if you enjoyed things up until this point, uh, we thank you for your support and we have much to look forward to in the future so continue to check back with us regularly new content weekly like share and subscribe and joe i'll give you any uh final thoughts before we close out this episode yeah 10 weeks 10 episodes this is a big episode we hit the the double digits finally and actually for this recording we might have some video footage we might experiment releasing and um perhaps this could be the start of our youtube platform 
lots to look forward to, ladies and gentlemen. So with that, we will go ahead and close out. For Joseph Stanford, I am Jimmy Hackett saying ciao. Thank you for joining us.